Hey friends, Jason Miller here. You're listening to the South Bend City Church Podcast. If you'd like to watch this teaching, just look for South Bend City Church on YouTube or find our Instagram account at SB City Church. Whether you're local and tuning in this way because our gatherings are suspended because of COVID or you're a member of our long-distance digital family, we love you and we hope you're well-served by this teaching. If you'd like to financially support the work, please go to southbendcitychurch.com give. So I turned 40 this past week. Uh, thank you so much, all of you. So many people reached out and were encouraging and shared kind words and all that and really kind of like helped smooth that thing along. Uh, but it was actually, it was pretty good. Uh, I think that turning 39 was probably harder for me, right? Because when I turned 39, all I was thinking about was turning 40 as this big kind of mysterious thing that I didn't really know what it would look like. And I just assumed that when I would turn 40, that my mind would just kind of stop working and then my body would start stop working and, and everything would just kind of shut down. Uh, I'm, I get a bit dramatic sometimes, so I know where my daughter gets it from. Uh, but anyway, so I kind of had that perspective. So when I hit 40 and everything was okay and I'm still living and I'm still going on, uh, I was just kind of like, hey, I can do this. So um, yeah, I'm actually excited to be 40 though, I think on some level, and this reflects some of the wisdom I've gotten from a lot of friends. So uh, on a milestone like this, you get people who reach out and share uh, good insights and wisdom. And a lot of people reached out and said that the 40s were some of the best time of their life. And I think that's the optimism I'm carrying forward. But one of the reasons that they pr primarily were sharing that was best, the refrain I kept hearing was that in your 40s, you finally get to be yourself. And that made me think a little bit because the reality that that acknowledges is that throughout the rest of life, it can be really difficult to just be yourself, right? That there's more out there, more expectations somehow on us to be more. There's pressure to somehow be more or different. And it's hard to feel like just being yourself is ever really enough. And this is something that isn't just this thing that happens to us that we realize. It's something that's deep in our culture in many ways. The sociologist Ruby Payne has done a lot of studies on uh, economic class dynamics in culture. And one of the things she noted as she was looking at economic classes and the cultures of these classes is that the different classes had different expectations and these different uh, hidden dynamics around identity and uh, what made people feel enough in each of those cultures. In the lower economic class, uh, the, the thing that was the emphasis was where you're from, right? And one of the things that, that she says in this research is that we often see these things crop up uh, in the questions that we would ask one another if we met somebody for the first time at a party, right? What's the first thing that you ask somebody to just try and get a grasp on who they are. And she said in the lower economic class, with the emphasis being on where people are from, you might meet somebody at a party and ask, uh, where are you from? What city are you from? And it might go further and you might say, what part of town are you from? You from northwest side, you from southeast side, you from east side, you from west side. And maybe it gets into zip code or maybe into neighborhood or maybe it's aligned by the schools that you would have attended in that location. Right, so we ask these questions because those are the things that are important to us as we start to figure out who people are. 
And those are the questions we might ask ourselves as we try to find out uh, if we make the grade, if we make the cut. Those might be the questions by which we see if we are enough or how we think of if others are enough. For the wealthy class, and this is not just people who have more money, the wealthy class are uh, the people who inherit generational wealth. For the wealthy class, uh, the thing that was important there was family, legacy, and connections. Right? So you might ask somebody at a party, what family do you come from? Are you a Hilton or a Rockefeller or a Rose? You know, like, what is your background? Where do you come from? Because in that culture, the thing that's important is the legacy that you're a part of, which says so much about who you are. And somebody in that culture might start to form opinions about themselves or others just simply based on the question of what family they come from. And in the middle class, she says, the question that's asked when you go to a party uh, and you meet somebody the first time is, what do you do? Right? And if I think about myself, that's always a thing that I ask when I meet somebody. Hey, I'm Ryan. What's your name? Okay, cool. What do you do? Right? Because in the middle class, there's an obsession with, uh, with what people do, with what people accomplish. And I think that that's something that I feel, and that's a burden that I resonate with and a burden that I carry. And this, uh, this thought about uh, what we do and what we accomplish does become a question by which we decide how we feel about ourselves or how we feel about others sometimes. And again, it's not just something that happens in adulthood. It's built into our culture early on. I think uh, high school yearbooks, right? And I know in my high school, we had the, you have so-and-so is the most likely to succeed, or so-and-so is the most likely to run a business someday, or so-and-so is the most likely to become president. Yeah, that was me, and it felt a lot better than, feels a little weirder now on that one. Right, but we have all of these expectations we put on people right from a young age. And then you move on from there, and you get things like the the top 30 under 30 list or top 40 under 40 list, and we keep having these measuring sticks of our worth based on what we've been able to accomplish or not. And as we feel those things, we start to feel pressure to live up to those standards, pressure to be more than what our story currently tells about us, pressure to be more than what we are. And when we don't live up, we feel insecure, we feel guilt, feel shame, we feel stress, we feel anxiety. And one of the things that we often do is we take those expectations that society puts on us of what society says is good or what society says is best or what society says means for us to be enough. And we take those expectations and sometimes we put those onto God as well. Right? If this is what it means to be good is to come from the right places and to to have the best accomplishments and to, to come from the best families. And if God is perfect, if God is the most good, then God must also really want those things for us. God must have the highest of expectations for us. God must really want or expect us to come from good places and to come from good families and to accomplish big, great things. And so oftentimes as we look at God and as we see God, it can very much feel like it does towards others, but even heavier, that in some way we're never quite living up to what's expected from us. Sometimes we look at our relationship with God and often leave ourselves wondering if I am enough. And so this tension of this question leaves us in a place where we feel not quite connected with God and a little bit of tension in the relationship. 
But the question for us is, is that what God is really like? Does God just have these same expectations as the rest of the world except bigger? Or does he have the same expectations at all? What's God really like? Well, the great thing is, uh, in this season, that's exactly the question that we're looking at. We're in a season in the church known as Epiphany, where we're looking at the surprising goodness of God that's revealed in Jesus. So in our faith, we have this picture, this story, that Jesus is God come to earth in the flesh, right? And if Jesus is God in the flesh, then in the life and actions of Jesus, we would have and we do have the clearest picture of God that we can get. And, but what that means sometimes is that as we look at the life of Jesus, sometimes we see things in the life of Jesus that don't match up to the picture or the expectations we've drawn of what God is like. And we have these moments where Jesus surprises us with goodness as Jesus shows us God's true nature. So that's what we're looking at in this time of Epiphany. As a church, uh, we're going through a gospel reading list together. Uh, you can go to our website and find that reading list. I would encourage you to jump in there if this is something that interests you in just finding more of the surprising goodness of Jesus. But today, uh, I want to look at a passage that specifically uh, helps us to think about this question of, am I enough? And we're actually looking at the gospel passage from the lectionary for this week. So if you have your Bibles, you can find it in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And it says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they also left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So here you have this simple story of Jesus going through life, and he finds these fishermen along the shore, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and he calls out to the fishermen and asks them to follow him. Now, at its surfacey level, uh, this is a very common and unsurprising story, right? Jesus, uh, in this moment of time, was seen as an up-and-coming rabbi, a teacher of the law. And one of the things rabbis did is they walked around teaching students and so one of the things that, that, that uh, youth in that day wanted to do is they wanted to follow and learn from a rabbi. It was just kind of the socially expected thing that you would do. So the fact that Jesus, a rabbi, is going out and finding students and inviting students to follow him, and the students dropping what they're doing and following the rabbi, all of that is largely unsurprising. But there is still something quite surprising to the story, given our expectations of God that we've just been talking about. You see, rabbis didn't just go and invite students to follow them. Rabbis went and invited students who were the best of the best. That's the way the, wor the world worked at that point. Rabbis all wanted the best students to be following them, so they went out and they saw and they found and they got the best of the best. But in this story, we actually have a picture that brings question to that, right? Because Simon and Andrew, James and John, are not really the best of the best by so many ways that we would measure things. You know, we could ask if they were uh, uh, prestigious because they were born in the right place, because they're from the right area. 
But these guys weren't from Jerusalem. They weren't from the educational and political and economic center of the world at that point in time. They were from Galilee. They were from the countryside up to the north. They were a little bit unrefined up in this area. They, they had a little bit of an accent or a funny dialect. Right? When you think about the people who would be the top of the top and you think about place being an important part of that, these are guys that are clearly, very clearly, from a different place. Well, what about the families that they come from? Well, we see right from the story that these guys are fishermen. Right? And in a world where people carried out a family business, we know that their families were in the fishing business. Right? And what this means is that their families weren't politicians or professors, uh, they, or, or priests. <laughs> they weren't politicians, professors, or priests. They were fishermen, which means they weren't on the a fast track to, to uh, status, right? So from, from those perspectives, we see that Jesus is calling a very different group of people. And finally, when we think about the things that these students had accomplished, uh, quite the opposite of them being highly accomplished people. So what we know in the first century Jewish culture is that at the age of five, all of the boys enrolled in school at the time, which the point of school was religious training where they went about studying and memorizing the Torah. Yeah, the Torah is the first five books of what we now know as the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. From the age of five, these children were memorizing the entire thing. It makes me rethink my entire experience of Sunday school, right? Uh, but we also know by the age of 13 uh, was kind of a, a dividing line. And those who were really good, those who had been really successful, continued on into further religious training. They were the honor students, the all-stars, the Rhodes Scholars. Those guys went on. Everybody else were the people that didn't quite make the cut, the people that weren't really exceptional, the people that didn't maybe live up to the expectations. And all of those people went back home to resume the family business. So the fact that we find the students that Jesus is calling, these new disciples, the fact that we find them carrying out the family business means these were already people that didn't make the cut. They were already people that were unremarkable. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus go out and find people with these unremarkable resumes on any different way you shake it? What is he doing here? Well, the other thing we know about rabbis is they didn't just choose the best of the best to follow them. They chose the best of the best who were most likely to end up like them. As Jesus is going and looking for disciples, Jesus is trying to find the people that were most likely to get what he was saying, to understand his perspective, and to ultimately become like Jesus. So as Jesus goes out and he sees these guys, he sees these guys with all of their story, he sees these guys, the, the underachievers, those who haven't, have failed to make the cut in the past, those who others might look down on for a variety of reasons, he sees these guys with their weak resume. And there's something about them that Jesus says, these are the people that are most likely to be like me. These are the people that are the most likely to be like God, to connect with God. For me, that perspective 
changes things. The idea that uh, all of society says is that you have to check off all of these boxes to become anything. And here we have a picture that God says, the fact that I'm not checking all these boxes, the fact that there's uh, all of these weak spots in the resume are actually things that make me consider you more likely to connect with what I'm doing, more likely to connect with me, changes my perspective. How does this change how we see others? How does this change how we see ourselves? Well, so often we look at others through some of the same lenses as society does in general, right? And we tend to elevate others based on past performance or based on education, both in how we see them, both in our esteem for them, and in whether or not we believe they have anything to offer us as we uh, try to learn more about God. Right? The people we tend to want to learn more from God are the people that look successful already in so many ways. The priests, the professors, the politicians. And sometimes along the way, that means we also end up dismissing in our esteem and learning less from those who just look like fishermen. I see this in my life. So I'm somebody uh, who was able to go to college. I have an undergraduate degree in Bible. I have a master's degree in theology. And I live in my neighborhood to be a pastor to my neighbors, to help my neighbors around me to see God more clearly. And I have one of my neighbors next door who is a strong woman who's faced a lot of challenges and has had a lot to overcome. And two days before Christmas, in the middle of the night, uh, her house with her and her children and at her house burned down. Thankfully, her and her children were able to get out. They were able to, to jump out the second floor window, uh, sustain some injuries, but they're okay, they're moving on. Uh, and they were able to escape into the cold winter night, having lost everything. I remember that night in the middle of the night, walking across the street and standing there. And as I was standing there, uh, one of my neighbor, the children came walking by me, a 10-year-old girl with just tears in her face. And I opened my mouth and I wanted to say something pastoral, right? I wanted to help her to see God in the middle of this situation and nothing came out. I just had no clue what I could possibly say as we're standing there watching the house still up in flames. And not just a couple moments later, I saw my neighbor come and rally everyone together, her kids, the neighbors, everybody that's standing around not really knowing what to do in the midst of this tragedy that was still very actively traumatic. And she called us around. She said, you know what, guys? Like, I'm here. My kids made it out okay. We're safe here together. God has been good to us. And she broke out into singing a hymn. And in that moment, I saw something more and I was influenced more in what it looked like, what it looks like to walk with God. What if in our lives we saw the example of Jesus seeing the value, seeing the ability in these fishermen to understand and connect with the kingdom of God, to have the potential to see more clearly? What if we saw that in our own lives and started looking more for the everyday fishermen to teach us about God? What would that do? Or what about as we see ourselves? 
right? So often we see ourselves through the lens of insecurity. We see all these blank spots on our resume, all the ways we didn't quite live up to maybe what other people thought for us or what our, our parents encouraged us that we could accomplish. We know all the ways that we haven't lived up to our potential. And we've let that view, uh, change how we view ourselves and how we view God. And so we come to church and we pray and we lift up songs to God perhaps, but down deep we still feel like there's something in that relationship with God that can never be made whole because maybe we're not good enough. But what if we recognized that maybe those weak spots in our resume, those blind spots in our past, maybe some of those things help us to become people that connect with the kingdom of God. They help us to actually be people that can end up looking more like Jesus. There's one last turn I want us to take here. It's by going forward into another disciple's call right here in the book of Mark. So if you want to just flip over, it's just a page of my Bible, flip over to Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at, at verse 13. It says this, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. And as he walked along the lake, he saw Levi, in other passages, uh, the name is Matthew, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So once again, we have an example of Jesus going out and calling another disciple. But here in this situation, Matthew or Levi is not an underperformer. He's not somebody that's been on the outside. He's not somebody that has failed to live up to potential. Matthew or Levi is somebody that we know from the story, know from the jobs that Matthew holds, that Matthew is educated, Matthew is wealthy, Matthew is likely prestigious. Matthew has a lot of things going for Matthew. This is not an example of underachieved potential, but instead Matthew's case is somebody who has high potential, somebody that we look to in life and think they have a lot going for them. But for Matthew, the issue here is that Matthew is a tax collector. That job at that time was different than it is today. That job at that time was notoriously corrupt and unethical. Tax collectors would collect money from people and skim some off the top before they turned it into the government. And, and everybody kind of knew this. So this is not a situation of an underperforming fisherman. Instead, this is the pastor's kid with all of the, all of the hopes and all of the expectations whose life is falling apart. This is the CEO who's accomplished so much, but his life is being wrecked at, through an affair in his marriage. This is the community leader who is uh, overwhelmed by an addiction that's taking over life. Right here in this situation, we see not underperformance, but we see somebody who actually has a lot of negative things going for them. And I think that also offers us a question. Right, because maybe it's not just the ways we haven't added up in life, the ways we feel like we're not enough. Maybe we know there's things about us that we feel disqualify us. Or maybe there's things that we know in the lives of others that we've allowed to disqualify them from having any influence or any redemption moving forward. But the story of Jesus tells us a different story. That no matter who we are, that no matter what we've done, 
no matter what our story is, we have a God who reaches out for us. So as we move forward, I just want to leave us with an action step, and that's this. If you get a chance this week, maybe today, I would ask you to just take some time to get away and reflect. Reflect on the ways in which the story of Jesus changes how we see God and the expectations we have of ourselves and others. And I want you to ask these two questions. First of all this, is there someone in your life or your world that maybe you've written off from being able to show you much about God that maybe you need to give a second chance to listen to them? What would we have to learn when we give people a second chance? The second question is this, what is there in your life that you've been hiding from your resume of life? That thing you've been insecure about, that thing that you hope no one would know about, that thing that you would do anything to change if you could? What is that thing? And in what ways have you allowed that thing to grow insecurity and pain and shame in you in ways that held you from God? that maybe you need to consider that God knowing those things are there means that you have potential to see God and the clarity of God for who God is. As you go out this week, my prayer for you is this. My prayer is that as you would go, that you would know that the expectations of the world, the burdens that weigh us down, the ways that we are feel that we are not enough, are not carried by God. May you go in the knowledge that there is a God who loves and cares about you and chooses you right where you are. Grace and peace be with you.